Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 119 of the Australian Hiker podcast, and in this week's episode, we talked to Blair Woodcock from Queensland, who recently completed a through hike on the US-based John Muir Trail. This trail, which many backpackers say contains the finest mountain scenery in the United States, runs mostly in conjunction with the Pacific Crest Trail from Yosemite Valley to Mount Whitney in California. In this episode, we're going to provide an overview of one of the most spectacular trails in the world and hear a first-hand account of what a thru-hike was like. We hope you enjoy. Now, before we go through and talk to uh, Blair about his trip, uh, the logistics and what he saw and how, and how he found it, I'd just like to provide a bit of a, um, a brief overview of what the track was like itself. This trail is managed by the Pacific Crest Trail Association and on their website, which we'll go through and provide a link of in the show notes, they say it's the land of the 13,000 and 14,000 foot peaks, of lakes in the thousands and of canyons and granite cliffs. This trail is 211 miles long uh, or 340 kilometres in, in metric and runs in conjunction, as we had mentioned, mainly with the Pacific Crest Trail. Now, for most people... Doing a, a trail the length of the Pacific Crest Trail, which in metric terms is around about 3,500 kilometres, is probably beyond most people's desires or availability of time. You know, Most of the people that hike the Pacific Crest Trail are either just out of school or they're retired. Um, there's not a huge demographic that sits in that middle where people are still working full time uh, or have trying to raise families. If you want to get a taste of what the Pacific Crest Trail is like, at least in, in a particular type of environment, uh, then a 19, 20, 25 day length trip uh, is certainly a, a bit more accessible and a bit more available to most people. The John Muir Trail visits some of the crown jewels of America's park system, Yosemite National Park, John Muir and Ansel Adams Wildernesses, Kings Canyon and Sequoia National Parks. So as much as this tends to be put across as being part of the Pacific Crest Trail, this trail in its own right really is a spectacular option uh, and probably something that if you're keen or thinking about doing the Pacific Crest Trail but don't have the time, uh, is well worth looking at. So now let's hear from Blair about his first-hand experience on walking this wonderful trail. So now that we've provided a brief overview of the John Muir Trail, let's talk with Blair, who's recently completed a through hike on this, this amazing trail. So Blair, welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, and thank you for taking your time to talk to us. Oh, thank you so much. Pleasure to talk about it. Okay, so firstly, before we, get, we start looking at the trail itself, let's get a bit about uh, your hiking background. Have you done many long-distance hikes in the past, or are you, are you uh, an occasional hiker? Probably occasional is probably the best way to say it. Um, I'd love to have done more, but 
uh, I've probably only done around three. Uh, I've done the South Coast track down in Tassie as well as the Overland Trail. Uh, and being a North Queenslander, of course, I've done Hinch and Brook as well. So I've only got three under my belt over the past four years or so. Well, that's not too bad. It's probably it's more than a lot of people tend to do. And then then then, then there was John Muir Trail, which you've just completed only a week or so ago, I think, was it? Yeah, uh, yeah, got off trail three weeks today, been back at home for uh, two weeks and still a serious case of post-trail <laughs> depression, that's for sure. Uh, and, and look, the John Muir Trail, it was definitely the longest one I've done in distance, in time. It was my first solo hike. It was my first international hike. So I, I kicked off a lot of uh, firsts for that one as well. All right. So that probably raises a question I hadn't thought of. Why solo hiking on this trail? And and, and you, by the sound of it, you're doing group hikes on previous trails? Yeah, I've got a group of hiking buddies that we tend to do the others with. Um, uh, and I guess it, that kind of leads into the fact that the John Muir Trail didn't uh, you know, kick off where I thought I was going to be in 2019. I, I wanted to do the Theodore Solomon Trail, which is a, a much lesser known lower altitude, uh, similar trail and similar distance and uh, locations uh, in America um, with a hiking buddy, but his leave didn't get approved. Mine did. So I thought to myself, I've still got the time approved. I'll chuck in a lottery to see how I go to get this JMT permit. Uh, things came my way. I, I got a permit of one and that's why it was a solo hike. Okay. I must admit, I'll have to have a look at the, the Theodore Solomon Trail. I haven't heard of that one. Um, and, it's, and it's, it's tiny. So it's, it's on a Facebook group is the way I found it. Um, again, it's a lower altitude. So if anyone's got any altitude uh, problems, this is the best option you can take. It's from Yosemite. It goes to Mount Whitney. But the trail is so remote in places uh, that it, there's a lot of navigation used. Uh, and, and that's why solo hiking it for that trail probably isn't you know, top of my list. Okay. Um, okay, so um, you were saying this is the longest distance trail you've done and it's the only, is it the first overseas uh, trail as well? Correct, yep. So a lot of firsts, a lot of uh, logistical problems that I came across, but again, a, a completely fault-free trail run. All right, so why did you actually decide to do this trip? What was so you you you, you said you were looking at the the Theodore uh, the Theodore Solomon Trail and you ended up doing this trip. What what was the reason for that? Yosemite and uh, the Yosemite National Park and the whole Sierra Nevada range is my wife and mine's favorite place in the world. It is just beautiful. I don't know if you've been there, but the the whole landscape is just stunning. It, it's got you know, amazing cliffs, a huge mountain, snow, it's got alpine lakes, it's got forests, it, it's just got everything and the remoteness and the sheer beauty and size is just unbelievable. And we went there in 2016 on a, on a, on a road trip uh, and it seriously stole our hearts. So uh, the thought of spending, you know, 26 days or 211 miles just walking around in that beauty was just um, confirmed. You have to do it. Now, from from uh, from memory, this is uh, or the the majority of this trail is also part of the Pacific Crest Trail as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think from you know, the only difference is from basically Crabtree Meadows at Mount Whitney, and then the other difference is around a ten mile gap between Reds Meadows uh, to Thousand Island Lake. So there's the whole thing is basically on the PCT. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's it. so in some respects, I know I know the Pacific Crest Trail, which is I'm just trying to think. It's about two thousand two hundred miles, so yeah, you know, three and a half, four thousand kilometers roughly. 
and you know, you can, there's no way you can you can get. The, I'm guessing you don't have the desert environment on this trail. It's pretty much uh, forest, I think, from memory. Forest and alpine, yeah. yeah. So you, you're you're skirting on the top of the tree line, and and a hell of a lot is above the tree line. I think uh, outside of being in Yosemite Valley at, at three thousand feet, you're sitting around between eight and twelve thousand for most of it. Okay. Now let's look at the trip itself. Um, you said you got a, a permit for this one. Um, so what's the story with the permit? Uh, my experience is simple. Uh, however, the uh, story is they can get excessively hard if you want to go the classic southbound route. So from Happy Isles or Yosemite Valley down to Mount Whitney. So um, you chuck in your lottery 168 days before you want to step off and you can put it in for a 21-day period these days. Uh, so you can sit back and just watch the rejection letters come through if, if you're that unfortunate. <laughs> um, but uh, look, for me, I was completely struck by a, a lucky arrow for sure. I, I put in my permit on the 23rd of January and on the 24th of January, I got uh, an approval uh, from my first trailhead entry choice, um, which was unbelievable. You know, you hear stories of people getting rejected for like 16 years or something nonstop, but um for me, day one with first choice of trailhead, I, it was just unbelievable. Um, and do they uh, do they actually provide any benefit or any bonus if you're an overseas hiker, or it's you go in the lottery with everybody else and it's just potluck? I think so. The one thing that sticks in my head is uh, you you know you write the trailhead, you write how many days, you write where you want to exit, you do all the kind of you know logistical stuff that you have to and down the bottom there's a comment section and i remember writing i cannot wait to come and experience this part of the world i know it's the most beautiful you know the, the most beautiful part i've ever seen and i'd like to think that the comment got me the actual permit but i've got no idea i'm sure it's all just <laughs> completely luck i must admit i mean one thing i i thought of when you were talking about the permit the uh, the pacific crest trail is also a permitted track as well i mean is there any any bonus or any benefit of just putting an application in for the pacific crest trail and just starting on the, the john muir or they're not they, they realize that and not going to let you uh, do that one i yeah I, they're probably not I, I think the big things that i've picked up on from talking to people is that the, the the big restrictions they've got is exiting Yosemite Valley over Donahue Pass is they want to really restrict those numbers so they can monitor, I guess, who's in Yosemite Valley or, or in the National Park. Yep. And then the use of uh, Mount Whitney, because obviously Mount Whitney is the highest mountain in the contiguous states of America. Uh, they've got their own separate lottery to summit that on particular day. So, um, and, and they've got their own logistical issues down there as well with, you know, human waste and everything. So they're really trying to monitor Mount Whitney and Donahue Pass. So, there's apparently a massive influx in the rise of uh, people asking for northbound permits, so, you know, from Mount Whitney or, or the surrounding areas to go into um, Yosemite, and apparently that's a lot easier to get these days. Um, but, again, the classic route is, is southbound, and that's that's what I wanted to do. Okay. So um, from a point of view of planning, so you, you got your, uh, your permit, so 168 days out, is that when the planning started? For me, yeah. I honestly didn't think I was going to get it. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I hadn't put any thought into it really, to be honest, until that came through. And as soon as that came through, it was game on from from training to logistics to, to working out how this is actually going to happen and, and if I was actually going to be able to complete it. So you know, what sort of uh, what sort of distances did you plan on uh, on doing a day? I mean, did, did you plan on doing a particular distance or is it tended to vary a bit? 
Yeah, it tended to vary. I kind of did a lot of research uh, using Facebook and all of these different blogs from people's past experiences because I kind of wanted, you know, I, I won't get an opportunity probably to do it in com- uh, a complete JMT trail again. So I wanted to make sure that I could give myself the best experience. I was trying to find the best campsites, the best lakes, if there was any amazing side trips that you had to do. So my my planned itinerary was based around the best campsites that I should go to and the distances to fit in between to get me to those places. Okay. Um, now, from a logistical point of view, um, uh, you, you you put you put a lottery in you, and you were given a date. Was that your preferred date? And if so, why? Oh, um, yeah, so my leave had been approved uh, for a particular time, so that's why I put the date in to start at that, on, on that date. But you put that 21 you've got a 21 day grace. So, you know, I'm just, I'm terrible with numbers and dates here. So say, you know, you wanted to start on the 1st of July, then, you know, your, your permit would run until the, your lottery permit, sorry, would run until the 21st of July and you could get any day in between. Um, again, we just chose July because uh, of, of expected leave approval, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only time. We didn't want to go too late. We didn't want to go uh, super early. Uh, and luckily with the snow snow levels this year as well, um, I'm really happy with the choice and, and, the, and the selection that we made. I made because um, while it was a heavy snow year, it, it wasn't insane. Uh, it offered some challenging opportunities uh, and it, I think it created a little bit more excitement, to be honest. <laughs> um, so you've, you've given me some photos which I'll put onto the show notes for people to have a look at, uh, but you said it was a, a big snow year. How, how big was it as far as snow was concerned? 202%, they said. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, and uh, it was so uh, mind-blowingly scary before you left because, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows there's a lot of fear-mongering happening on Facebook and when you talk about such a, you know, an epic trip like the John Muir Trail and everyone talks about uh, ice axes and micro spikes versus crampons for, for days after days and we see photos of some very brave PCTers going through Forrester Pass first where they were basically cutting the trail Everyone was getting a little bit freaked out, um, including myself. Uh, but in the end, look, there was a lot of snow, absolutely. I, I can't even predict how much, you know, how many miles or kilometres we walked over. I know everyone was saying on Newell Pass it was around three miles of it on either side. But it was there was snow on day two and there was snow on, on the last day. There was snow every, every day we saw. Um, but... To be honest, the more challenging thing and the more thing that people were stressed about was the, the snow melt and the high river crossings that we would have come across as well along the way. Yeah, must, um, admit, must admit I hadn't thought about that. You think about the snow, but as soon as the snow melts, it's gonna, the water's got to go somewhere and that's, in some respects, it's probably even worse when you're getting getting higher rivers uh, pushing through. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, whenever we came across a PCT or, or someone else on the trail, that was the first question, what's the next river crossing like? Because I think everyone was a little bit concerned. Um, I ran into some some Aussie PCTs in Tuolumne Meadows on day three, and they were kind of of the assumption and belief that uh, the high snow melt had finished, like the mass, the peak of it had gone and it, the rivers were started decreasing. But, look, there was a lot of dangerous water crossings, but thankfully, um, you know, there was either logs across the creeks uh, or... Uh, through gut hooks, the amazing app everyone uses, you know, yep. the social community was telling us about alternative crossings and safer places to go. So, um, look, r- river crossings were freezing, they were high, um, but 
with someone else by your side, which I always tried to find uh, to do on the high ones. That it was never extremely dangerous unless you weren't confident in, in crossing on a log. Just while we're talking about environmental conditions, you mentioned you're a lot, on a lot of high ridges in the past. And, and one of the things that uh, we often tend to hear from an Australian perspective about the US is um, the, the issue with lightning strike on, uh, on on the top of ridges. Was that an issue that concerned you at all or you're, you're pretty lucky in that respect? Uh, both, yes to those answers. Yes, it did concern <laughs> me and yes, I was lucky. Um, so the, the Sierra monsoon, as I was told about, is uh, where you have these beautiful blue sky days and then, you know, for three or four days in a row, there's just a massive storm in the afternoon and then it clears up again. Um, that, that hit while I was on trail. Uh, it happened at Lake Marjorie. I was in my tent for three hours while just a, a general storm happened. The next day it was a four-hour hail storm. Uh, and then the next morning I woke up, I was leaving Upper Ray's Lake and going over Glen Pass. And uh, I was solo this day. I didn't have any anyone with me. Um, and as I was climbing, the clouds started to regather. And this is like at eight thirty in the morning. I'm like, nah, this is it's just it's just some cloud passing over. It'll be fine. And continue to to trek up towards the top of the pass. And then all of a sudden, this massive thunder rumble started, and the clouds really started to get dark. And I'm like, oh, this is this is not the best. Um, so just all I could do at that stage, you know, I was you know, I think I was at like 11,000 feet. I had another, you know, 800 feet to go or 1,000 feet to go until the pass uh, ridge. Put the blinkers on, just put the power on and tried to go as fast as I could uh, over snow and rock scramble and, and snow and everything. Uh, but got over the got over the pass before the, the, um, the storm hit. And I ran into a couple of people I'd met a couple of days uh, previous in the next two days and they were saying they got caught on the top, they got hailed on. They saw lightning strikes, you know, a couple of metres away from the actual summit pass. And I, I was extremely thankful that <laughs> I was able to get over before that hit. Yeah, I mean, I give. so how long was the trip overall? Uh, I planned to do 26, uh, but I did it in 22. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's – that's, that's, and is that, tip, that a typical sort of uh, time frame for this trip or – yeah. About three weeks is average. I mean, in that 22 days, I still had two zeros in there as well. So, um, yeah, average is about three weeks, I think they say. Okay, that's pretty good. So from a travel perspective, um, you know, it's one thing when you're a, a, a US citizen doing this trip, uh, you're coming from Australia. What was, the, what was the travel process like to actually get to the start of the trip? Uh, not as bad as getting out of the trip, to be honest. I, I would seriously recommend if anyone's going to do it, you try and go southbound because um, getting there is a, a lot easier than, than getting out. Um, I look, I, I flew into LA. I drove to, I got a hire car, drove to Fresno, uh, and then Yart, which is the, the the public travel system into Yosemite area, goes straight from Fresno to the valley. So it was really easy getting in. Um, Coming out uh, along the the eastern coast of the sea or the eastern Sierra is probably a little bit challenging. It's just long, really. Uh, once you get to Lone Pine, what was it? It's a it's a five or six hour bus to Lancaster, then another three hour train journey into oh, LA. God. So <laughs> it's just tiring getting out of there and and a lot of movement. Um, but I mean, th- there's different alternatives. You could you could have travelled north and gone back through Yosemite if you drop your car there, or you know you could have gone back the complete same way it just it just takes time or you could have flown out of mammoth a bus yeah. ride from lone pine up to mammoth so there's different options um but i just found getting into yosemite a lot easier 
All right. It's, it's interesting. I must admit, as much as I've heard about this trail, I've never actually thought about getting to and from it. You just think, okay, look, it's uh, you fly into a, a fairly easy destination. You might have a short trip there, but it sounded like it was a, a bit more of a – that was probably some of the hardest uh, part of the whole trip was actually getting getting to the start of the trip. Yeah, and, and for me personally, the most annoying part of it was because my plans changed. Like I'd booked a hotel in Lone Pine. I'd, I'd sent all of my – uh, personal belongings from Yosemite to that hotel in Lone Pine so I'd have some clean clothes and you know all other stuff at the end of the trail but because my plans changed as well I had to change all my hotel bookings there was um, full hotels I had to just throw everything out so if anyone's going to do the JMT it's probably a great idea that you actually get the email address of those locations that you're staying at the end on your inReach or two-way communicator so you can actually adjust your plans as you go that was a huge failing on, or a learning on my behalf. <laughs> And you, and you were using a, an in-reach uh, 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 personal locator beacon slash um, communicator? Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. The whole um, way. So, yeah, I was talking to my wife, making sure she knew where I was the whole time. Uh, I had a few other friends following me as well. Um, and, yeah, I, I did change one of my accommodation, Mount Williamson Hotel in Independence. They're a, a through-hiker a through kind of haven, I guess you could say. They were great. Um, and talking to them consistently about my change in dates as well. Okay, that's that's, that's definitely a good thing. I think it's um, – I'm a big fan of the, the Garmin inReach um, devices. They, they, they're they not cheap. There's a an ongoing subscription fee, but the the versatility and the ability to, as you say, make chan- make plans on changes in the middle of a trail or to, to talk to a spouse or a family member is, 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 is definitely worth it. Yeah, I even had, um, I even met, you know, two or three people on the Facebook group and on the trail as well who we just exchanged our in-reach communication details as well. And, and because we weren't together most of the time, we were either ahead or behind each other. Sharing trail details is, is huge as well. So um, it kept us a little bit sane along the way too. All right, that's good. Um, so uh, I suppose I'll go a bit off track to what I'd originally planned here. So We've talked about, you know, it's basically an alpine um, slash forested trail. What about the, the, the mountains and the altitude on this trail? Yeah, they, they can get pretty high. Um, the highest point on the trail is forest, sorry, yeah, on the trail itself is forest to pass at, I think, 13,200 13, feet off the top of my head. Uh, Mount Whitney, of course, at the end is is the highest point at 14,500 Um most of it, as I said, sits between 8,000 and, and 11,000 feet along the way. And if you do go southbound, uh, it's better for the um, uh, acclimation as well because you start lower and you slowly gain it. Whereas if you do go northbound, you, you're, you're kicking off at you know, 14,000, 13,000 feet on day three or four, which is, which is huge if you're living on the, the, you know, one of our cities in Australia where we're sitting basically near zero. So, yeah, um, yeah. It, it, yeah. Look, for me, yeah, so I went northbound. It's a killer on a couple of days. Day one, I nearly got, you know, 2,000 metres altitude gain uh, in, in 16 kilometres or something on day one, which was, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> with a full pack as well. It was really great. Um, but, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and to kick off day one like that, uh, it really set a nice tone for it. But you always go up and you always go down every day. Uh, I remember there was at one point we were coming down from – uh, Lake Virginia it was, and you look down in this gully and there's a beautiful tully hole it's called and you're going down your switchbacks, you're walking down 
and all the time, all you think is, I wish they just had a bridge because right across that gully is exactly where you're going to have to climb straight back up. And it's just, it's a little uh, mentally hurtful some days where you just know you're walking straight down and get straight back up again. But um, it's, the scenery makes up for it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think that's the thing. It's, I, I love uh, a lot of Australian hikes. They've got some spectacular views, some spectacular environments, but we don't have the big conifer forests uh, and the and the, the the deciduous forests that they get in the US and, and in Europe. So yeah, you know, this is this is one of the reasons I'd like to go through and do uh, one of the big American trails just for the for the different scenery. Yeah, it's epic. It really is. Okay, so from an, uh, an equipment point of view, um, did you take all your gear with you from from Australia or did you, you buy some stuff when you got over there? No, I, I took it all with me. Um, I had everything I needed. Uh, the only thing that I was debating was, was an ice axe and I spent around 45 minutes at the REI store, which is like America's BCF over in Fresno, uh, debating with the guy whether or not I needed one or not and... Um, uh, decided not to, and I, it was it was the right decision. So, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it, it, it's 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 hard to know. I mean, particularly for us, where we, you know most Australians aren't used to doing uh, snow hiking as such. It's not not as common as the US, and I think it's sort of you know you hear that this is what you need, and you and, and until you have that discussion, you don't actually know whether that's the case or not. So it's good to talk to an Australian that's done it and and get their view on what the process is. Yeah, and as I said, it goes back to that fear-mongering. Everyone online was saying you need it, you, you know, you can't go without it. Um, and look, right, maybe, you know, three weeks beforehand or four weeks beforehand, you you couldn't. Um, but, yeah, it was, the, it was the right decision, right in wait. I, had a, I was walking with um, an American on and off throughout it. He was carrying one the whole way and didn't even touch it. Uh, and, you know, on, while I was on trail, there was so many people who didn't even use micro spikes to go over, you know, ice patches as well. But I was just not that confident. Well, most, what were most people wearing on the on their feet? Were they using boots or were they using trail runners? What's the what's the the in footwear on the uh, the John Muir Trail these days? I would say probably uh, uh, trail shoes more so than trail runners. Uh, so not boots, but not the runners. So there's a little yep. bit of sturdiness and strength in the in the sole, but um, still a little bit of movement. Yep. Now. Is this a bear a bear area, and do you need to carry a, a bear container of some sort? Absolutely, uh, another pain in my life. Uh, yes, you need to carry a one point no a nine hundred gram bear canister the whole way, um, and not one bear was sighted by me, which was a bit unfortunate. <laughs> but that's uh, look. If I wasn't carrying it, no doubt there would have been a million. Um, yeah, it is a bear canister. You need so you can rent them, you can buy them. I bought one as a kind of souvenir as well. So. Um, Yes, it's 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 a joy and a and a pain at the same time. Did that force you into changing your pack, or you uh, yeah, you managed to fit fit the canister into the pack you you already you were using? I know I managed to fit it in. So I've got a um, Osprey sixty five liter, uh, an Atmos sixty five. So um, it's a big heavy pack, um, but I, I got it in there, and everything uh, apart from the the tent was on the outside, but everything else was on the inside. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Um, so, were there any gear fails at all, or everything sort of seemed to work as as you expected that it would do? Um, yeah, every, yeah. On the most part, I, I had a few little fails, but you know, my my gaiters broke on week two. I walked through the, the you know the underfoot strap of that, but you know, you're walking on rocks and gravel and and so forth for 
for that that stage it would have been you know 150 200 kilometers or so so you know it's going to happen eventually so that that's fine i had the hiking poles i had the um adjustable hiking poles and they kept on slipping for a little bit really wasn't happy with those uh, I, I've, I've retired them very quickly so um in the market for some new hiking poles but uh, that was basically it really these were a, a twist lock, were they, as opposed to the the, the flick lock tile style system? Or yeah, yeah, not not well. I'll, yeah, lucky speed locks, whatever they're called. Um, it, yeah, they they kept on slipping. I, I look, I, I manually tightened them so tight that they became unadjustable, uh, but at least they weren't slipping. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's. I must admit, I, I like having something that's that f- physically locks in place. You know, it's a bit harder to adjust, but I think it's uh, uh, you know once you put them in place, they don't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that mine led to only two nasty, uh, well, not nasty, but two little slips, one across a river crossing and, and one on the snow. But uh, there was no injuries, but that was definitely a sign that they were going to get thrown out. Now, take us through a typical day on the trail. Yep. Uh, so depending on, on where I was going or how long I thought I was going to hike for, I was either up at five or six uh, every morning. It took me about an hour to, to, to wake up, pack up, and, and have breakfast before I got on my little way. Um, and then it was just normally walking um, <laughs> until until I either reached the destination or, or we'd had enough for the day. Generally, I was stopped by three or four. There was some days where I'd stopped by 10 or 11 because uh, of the, either the campsite or, or yeah, or, or we'd got to that place to, to hold off for the next day. So um, it's, yeah, that... that that's basically it. It's um, it's it's we just stopped wherever we wanted to. There's so many scenic places to stop. There's so many uh, kind of uh, set campsites along the way uh, to obviously not wreck the the, the backcountry as well. So there's so many places to choose from where you could just stop and, and appreciate the view as well. Okay. Um- so, in relate, you mentioned uh, camping. Did you have to camp at particular spots, or you could camp pretty much anywhere you wanted to? You could camp anywhere you wanted to, um, and of course, you know they really advise to keep the, the leave no trace policy. So they do ask that you do try and keep to um, previous uh, campsites or, or, or camp areas, um, which are not only marked on all the gut hooks, and, but you know uh, Elizabeth Wang's starter book's got a whole list, and it's quite visible when you see them as well where they are. But apart from that, you literally can camp anywhere as long as you know it, it's away from the water, it's off the trail, and you're not camping on any um, you know undurable surfaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. It's sort of, I know with, uh, from what I understand of the uh, the Appalachian Trail, that in a lot of areas you, you must camp at the uh, the shelters. Um, not, not, no shelters whatsoever, I guess. It's all campsites, but um, through the Gut Hooks app and, and through Elizabeth Wank's uh, data book, there is a, a plethora of existing campsites to be used. Um, obviously, with the Leave No Trace, they kind of say, uh, you know, camp in existing campsites or, you know, durable surfaces, but... Um, the campsites along the way are so visible as well and they're so plentiful um, and in great places as well. So um, no, no shelter, all intent, all, all, all out in the open. Uh, a few people were cowboy camping as well. I, I didn't have the nerve to do that. Um, a few mosquitoes and the temperature was too chilly for me, but, um, but there's plenty of people out there doing it. Actually, that, that, while I think about that, that's something we haven't actually talked about. What were the temperatures like on the trip? Uh, during the day was beautiful. Um, I, I never... I never really checked, but I reckon it would have been, oh, I don't know, 28, 29 degrees tops with 
pure sunlight on most days. Uh, I reckon overnight it, it would have got down to single figures. I wouldn't say below freezing by any means, but, you know, m- maybe five or six. That's not too bad. It's sort of uh, it's a bit hard to judge. I mean, when you particularly when you see mountains with snow on them, you think, okay, well, it's going to be cold. Five five to six yeah. is actually quite reasonable for for uh, uh, you know considering you are in the you know in that thirteen thousand fourteen thousand foot mountain range. So. Exactly right. I had issues with condensation in my tent maybe two or three nights, um, but most nights it wasn't too bad to be honest. So it couldn't have been too bad. And, and your tent was actually a um, a single skin tent from memory, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a tarp tent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that's always the thing. You what you save on weight, you sort of pick up on condensation if the conditions don't go your way. So. <laughs> exactly right. Luckily, the the days were mostly beautiful, so everything dried out okay. Anyway, on those on those few days there was condensation. So, okay. what did you actually do food wise for the trip? I used the Zero Day Resupplies company, uh, that American uh, online business uh, where you go online, you set it up perfectly, you just they, – they've obviously got their uh, products online, so it's like Woolworths, I guess you could say. You go online, you pick your stuff, uh, you tell them where to send it, and they ship it off. Uh, they're there – and this isn't an ad for them. I'm sorry if it sounds like it. No, that's fine. Uh, but they're super friendly, and, and the, the guy is a hiker who runs it, and um, his name's Spartan, or that's his trail name, and he'll help you with personalised information over email as well. He was, he was a godsend for me, promised me there wouldn't be any issues, and there wasn't. Um, the food was, was as you'd expect, dehydrated or oatmeal or, or peanut butter tortillas. Um, the, only, the only weird thing I found was because it is American, I had to kind of decipher what their products were and what they did. Um, whereas, you know, I'll, you know, they've got a brand of electrolytes called Noon and I had no idea that what that was. So you just have to kind of hope and pray that it does the same thing and so forth. Um, but, yeah, they, they send it to everywhere you want. Um, resupply options are, are pretty nice on the JMT uh, depending on how much food you do want to carry. Uh, the only the only downside on it is that the Muir Trail Ranch is probably the last on-trail resupply point before Mount Whitney. And at a push, it's probably 10 days. Uh, most people take around 10 days uh, between the two. And that's a lot of food to shove into those bear canisters, um, especially if you're from Australia and have never tried to pack one before too. No, um, I, I believe yeah. it's, a, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle to try and get everything in. I think it, I think towards the end I was getting it, but not even at Muir Trail Ranch did I have it down pat. So I decided to walk out at uh, Kearsarge Pass, which is, again, it, it's 14 miles off and back on, and it's another pass, so it's another, you know, 1,500 feet elevation up and back too so um but it did have a zero and independent so it was a nice nice break in in between but um it's yeah the resupply isn't an option and you could have you know literally resupplied in independence too if you wanted to um well like buy in store um but that that company just makes it so much easier for those people traveling into america yeah, no, and I think that's the thing. I, I, I know, I know. There's a couple of those those type of uh, uh, companies in the states that do that, uh, and I'm thinking there, there's. I know we're a lot smaller over here, but I think there's there's potentially a market for it. You know, you, I I'm very picky on what I like what I like eating on the trail. Uh, I won't eat two minute noodles, and you know, the, <laughs> I, I like to know that what I'm eating is I, I'm, I'm I have a a, a a list of things that I eat, and I tend to restock and resupply on that. Uh, and uh, you know, it's good to know that you can say, right, I've I've ordered this. I know what's coming through. You don't have to guess that the next town you're going to has things that you might potentially like. 
So, yeah. yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, I did order a few things I didn't like. And unfortunately for me, I ordered them four times or so every resupply. <laughs> um, but again, you, you get what you give. And, and um, that's that's the way it landed. And I still ate it anyway at that stage after walking, you know, 22 kilometers a day, you kind of <laughs> just eat anything anyway. Yeah. yeah. All right. Actually, one thing I, that, that, that this prompts one more question. Um, I know, you know, in Australia, you have an accident, someone, you know, a helicopter or an ambulance or someone will come and pick you up and, and that's pretty much it. Uh, the states that, you know, where, where you've got a user pay system, so I'm assuming you had uh, uh, travel insurance to cover you just in case of accident? I did. It was a bit of a challenge to try and find someone that wanted to uh, insure a solo hiker uh, at that altitude, um, but I did manage <laughs> to find someone. Um, yeah, so we, I had all travel insurance and I specifically spoke to people at the centre before I signed up and handed over my hard cash just to make sure that I was fully covered for what we were doing. Um, I think just just really check that the PDF, PDFs or PDSs as well because there's a lot of fine print that they can really get you at. Um, I think I used, uh, again, sorry to sound like an ad, but Alliance Insurance were, were, were the only one that I found that was willing to do a solo hiker at that alt- between those altitudes and solo. Yeah, I must admit, I was only the, the, what prompted me on this was um, I've just gone through and uh, getting my Garmin inReach ready for our trip that we start on the human hovel track in about a week's time. And um, uh, one of the options that they they actually offer insurance, evacuation insurance, as part of the uh, uh, as their package. So I, I wasn't too sure if you'd gone that way or you'd gone through the insurance company. So. Um, no, I, I kind of maybe maybe uh, didn't read into the Garmin stuff enough about how to get out and what their SOS actually meant, um, but luckily it wasn't needed. Um, there was a few. I heard once I got off trail, I heard of two people who were rescued while we were on trail, and and still to the day, just looking at the John Muir Trail Hiking Group on the Facebook page as well. There's been another one or two since, and luckily they haven't been massive. Um, injuries or, or incidences, um, but they've definitely, um, the, the search and rescue have definitely come to the rescue to help. On to the trip itself, what were the highlights of the trip? Oh, there, there were so many. Um, uh, first one was the first day I stepped off. I, I remember I was just so pumped and excited and it would, that, that moment of walking out of my campsite at Yosemite will always stay in my mind. Um, again, as I said at the start, you know, it was, it was my first solo, my, my longest hike, my first international hike. I, I'd planned so much for this. So I'd, I'd basically dedicated the last six months of my, my, my life to it. So to, to step off was, was one of the big highlights and, and, and Likewise, finishing it, the sense of accomplishment at that end of that journey was just huge. Um, along the way, uh, I'd say um, being at one of the national monuments in America, Devil's Post Piles, which is along the way, completely by myself at that, at that site. It, it was just amazing, you know, to, to be in, in one of those, you know, historical sites that, that's down in, you know, um, uh, protection forever and, and not a soul around and the same on top of Thousand Island Pass under the peaks of um, Mount Ritter and Banner Peak Thousand Island Lake sitting there at, you know on at ten and a half thousand feet and again there's not a soul it, it was just so peaceful so serene it was just uh, a beautiful moment on the trail for me. So on, the, on that basis, as you say, this this is the you're talking about the national monuments, which for, for want of a better term, is you know it sort of falls into the the, the the American Reserve category. Why weren't there many people around? It was at the time of the year or the the time of the week or. Oh, I was there at 8 a.m. in the morning. I don't even know what day okay. of the week it was off the top of my head. But it, it, 
while it's a social track, it was definitely a quieter year, and that was definitely the um, opinion of a lot of people on trail as well. Um, it, there, there didn't seem to be as many JMTs. There didn't seem to be uh, the constant flow of PCTs, whether they'd flip-flopped or whether they'd um, you know, just skipped the Sierra and were coming back later on because of the snow season. I'm not too sure, but it just seemed a, a little quiet from everyone's opinion out there. I suppose, as you say, if the if the snowpack was uh, or the snow snow conditions were two hundred and two percent of the norm, people were probably thinking, "Oh, we'll do something else this year and and, and skip it." But but by the sound of it, uh, I think you know you 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 took the chance and and it paid off. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad I did. All right, and and what sort of, what's what's yeah you know, what you, you were saying uh, uh, earlier on it was alpine scenery and, and large fauna, uh, large uh, forests. What's what what were you actually seeing? Yeah, um, not probably not so much redwoods. Definitely sequoias or whatever, or whatever they are. Amazing yep. old trees that are there. Um, there was a few fern forests we went through. Uh, a, a lot of uh, you know rocky alpine tops, um, and then uh, amazing meadows as well. Just you know massive meadow creeks and uh, well a lot of sludgy water as well as the snow melt was continuing. Um, and then again, uh, the rivers in between each kind of uh, mountain pass as well were there to were there to cross too. So, I mean, it, it's got every, it, it had everything. It, it really did. If you wanted to, um, you know, concentrate and just do section hikes, you could pick some some of the most different landscaped sections around. You know, you could do the, the Ray Lakes loop down the south and, and do Forester Pass and. and the Ray Lakes loops, which includes uh, Arrowhead Lake and Dollar Lake and a few of the other beautiful lakes. Or you could jump out at, you know, between um, a few of the other towns up north, which have just got, you know, the Muir Pass section and so forth, which are uh, just basically a pass a day. So you're just going up and down constantly over those alpine passes. So you, you mentioned you, you can, you, by the sound of it, you can do a lot of side trips. Did you do many side trips at all or you pretty much were the track itself and that was about it? Uh, yeah, I stuck to the track itself. Um, I was going to do one side trip just off track a fraction and stay a night at Lake Charlotte, but that was one of the days that the weather was turning pretty sour and I exited a day and, and took a zero in Independence instead. Um but again, the 60 Lake Basin just above the Ray Lakes, which apparently I was told was just spectacular and I should spend a day up there. But uh, the weather wasn't great. So walking an extra thousand uh, feet elevation to stay a day where there's more risk of hail and snow didn't really excite me. No, I must admit I've had this the same sort of situation. You know, you do a you do a track, and you know, if you had a, if you had a, another week or so, you'd probably go off and do all these wonderful side trips. But you know, you've you've got a time time frame to work with, and you've got to pick what you're going to do. Exactly. All right. Well, what about the negatives? Were there any downsides? Or you know, there's always going to be some negatives. But what, what were the the downsides of this trip? For me, um, I couldn't pick any downside. I mean, depending on how. Uh how much you want to pinpoint problems. I mean, there was a heap of mozzies, but I'm in North Queensland, so I'm used to mozzies. You know, the rivers were high, but again, you're going on a JMT through the backcountry in a snow season, so you've got to kind of put up with some of those expectations. Um, for me, there, there wasn't really a negative, but I do have a regret, uh, and that was um, we'd heard a lot about some snow issues between Thousand Island Lakes and Red Meadows, uh, Red's Meadows, yeah. uh, and that's where the JMT and the PCT take that. 10 mile detour um because of that and, and we'd heard numerous reports from uh other people coming the other way i decided to take the pct detour for that section uh 
And while I know it was the right decision at the time, I, I do regret it in hindsight. Um, but that, that's that's the only negative I could think about. All right. Um, not too much rain at all over the trip? No, just just those three afternoons, well, the two afternoons of rain uh, and then that one day that I walked out for was apparently consistent rain in the Sierras. So um, in total I had, what is that, around nine hours of rain in 20, 22 days. In relation, if people are looking at doing this trip, who would you recommend this trip is for? Absolutely anybody. There's a range. Anybody's out there at the moment. Everybody's out there at the moment. And I honestly believe if you walk to your strengths and you walk to your limits, then you can complete it. Um, I met a 16-year-old kid who was doing it solo. Uh, I met a number of 70-year-old or so men and women out there who are walking it. Some of them are only going six miles a day um, and definitely just walking to their pace. But again, if if that's what it takes and that's what you can carry and, and you can survive with that, then it is 100% worth it. Okay. Um, so uh, so there's, you, you don't have to have any um, amazing outdoor skills or be, be exceptionally good with navigating or you know, what's worth? No. no, yeah. The track is um, the track's actually great. The whole PCT is graded for pack animals and horses. So as you can imagine, then the track is fairly defined um, if there's no snow. Um, so it, it's fairly easy. It's never overly steep um you know so there's switchbacks to your best friend out there uh whether you like it or not um so i honestly believe yeah if you've got the, the the physical ability to do it and you can you can carry your pack with the weight then it's it's a great track to do and even if you section hike it i know that's a long way to go just to section hike it but even if you just do half of it or, or a quarter or a third or whatever there's plenty of bailout options along the way Okay, so in other words, if you if you only have a week, you you can you can pick pick where you want to go and just do the week, and that's it. Then, absolutely. And I suppose um, a question which I hadn't actually thought of, but uh, would you do it again? If and I know there's a lot of a lot of other tracks you probably want to do, but if you had the opportunity, would you do it again? One hundred and ten percent. I'm already trying to convince the wife to come and do a section <laughs> hike with me in a few years. Okay, so uh, now we've gone through and talked about this uh, this trip. What final thoughts would you like to give our listeners about this trail? Yep, easy done. First of all is train for it. Um, I am so happy that I, I pushed myself uh, through that six months to train because I think if you, if you put yourself in that right physical space, then you can just actually enjoy the actual hike because it is intense. It really is demanding. There's ups, there's downs consistently. So um, I, I survived without a blister, without any chafing, where people were exiting because they had so many different ranges of injury. So train for it is my first tip of advice. Secondly, depending on the year you go, obviously the conditions are going to change. But um, if you're a member of, you know, the JMT Facebook pages or, or one of those Facebook groups out there, pick someone that you can trust and, and, and talk to them. Don't, don't get put off by the fear mongering that's out there. Um, don't get me wrong, 202% snow year. There was a lot of probably valid, you know, fear out there. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it was excessive at the same time. And I think that I... I couldn't even begin to imagine how many permits would have been handed back because people thought it was too dangerous or they weren't in the right space. But if you train for it and, and you can talk to someone you can trust or, or someone who's been on it to, to gauge that, um, I, I think that'll put them at ease. Um, and third, look, this is, it's tough, it's challenging, it's demanding, it's so fun though, it's exhilarating, it's beautiful and it's epic and it's, it is so easy to understand and why this, this trail is always in one of the top 10 backpacking, hiking trips in the world. It, it, it definitely deserves that rating. Yeah, yeah. So 
We've been talking to Blair Woodcock about his uh, recent through hike on the John Muir Trail. Uh, thanks very much for, for coming on and providing your time, Blair. Thank you so much. Okay, so that was Blair Woodcock just talking about his recent through hike on the John Muir Trail in the United States. For me, one of the reasons that I was interested in talking to Blair was that I've had a particular interest in hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and in large part the uh, the John Muir Trail uh, pretty much is a, a section of the uh, Pacific Crest Trail with a few small pieces that are, that are different. So it was good to hear um, his view on what, what is considered, as he said in the interview, one of the top 10 hiking destinations or hiking trails in the world. I think for a lot of people, um, things like the Pacific Crest Trail at roughly three and a half thousand kilometers is a hard ask for a lot, for most people. Um, uh, you know, you really do have to commit a, a fair amount of time. Um, but to get a taste uh, by doing a trail that, uh, will take you, uh, roughly three weeks, uh, approximately to, to go through and do is a good option and a good alternative. And it, and it really is talk, listening to Blair and looking at all the blogs and posts that I've read over the years of the John Muir Trail. This is a trail that's well worth adding to people's bucket lists. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, you know, it, it, it is a challenge, but, um, it's, it's one of the spectacular, um, trails, uh, in the US. So, uh, definitely will attract a lot of interest uh, from our listeners. And I think for me, um, as as he was talking, um, there were all sorts of different aspects that came out and, and Tim and I were sort of comparing the things that stuck out for each of us and we found that they were actually quite different. Um, so, you know, the things that stuck out for me were um, – you know, sharing your in-reach Garmin details with fellow hikers. I, I thought, well, that was pretty smart. <laughs> I never thought about doing that, but yeah, you know how how clever that is. Um, and yeah, I, I must admit, I I've always we we do use a Garmin in-reach, and and from our perspective, we tend to think about it as being. Yeah, it's an emergency device. It's a way of letting family know you're okay. But I just hadn't thought about uh, using it to contact other hikers that you may be on the trail with. It just makes so much sense. Yeah, and just to find out, you know, what was ahead or or what was behind. I mean, yeah, it does definitely, um, particularly for you know those long hikes uh, where you know you could be impacted by all sorts of things. Um, I was interested to to hear about. Uh, the uh, absence of bears. Um, I, I always think that that's the thing that concerns uh, me most about um, hiking in the US. And uh, I think he was a bit disappointed that he didn't see one, um, <laughs> bizarrely. Uh, and the other thing that, that you know, really uh, stuck out for me was some of the logistics um, around doing a trip like this and, and particularly getting out, uh, getting back to uh, where he was able to then, you know, fly out of the US and and the challenges and the time it took uh, to do that. 
Um, a couple of other things that uh, that sort of uh, came up for me that I thought were quite interesting. We talked about the insurance uh, issue, and certainly we 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 have it pretty lucky in Australia. Um, you injure yourself on a trail, um, as long as you can get contact with emergency services by some means, whether it be by phone or personal locator beacon or something like the Garmin InReach, uh, someone will come and collect you, uh, and basically the the bill is paid, at least from an evacuation point of view. Uh, in the States, it is very much a user pay system. Um, I would strongly recommend that if you are hiking in the USA, you have insurance. It's, it is too big a risk not to because it's, you hear horror stories of people being evacuated and owing $100,000, uh, in fees. So, you know, you, you, you're crazy if you don't. So it's it's a consideration that we typically don't tend to think of in Australia when we go hiking, but something that um, I do or we do anytime we go overseas, and certainly in America, uh, you know, it's it's a definite thing you need yeah, to sort of absolutely. keep in mind. The other things uh, that the uh, Blair talked about that I thought were quite good, um, we talked about um, cowboy camping. He mentioned that, and that's basically uh, when you go through and you're just lying or sleeping on the ground. You might have a ground sheet underneath you, but no tent or no shelter. Um, I think um, uh, for me, I just because of some of the areas I hike in, there's too much um, insect life and spider life and everything else that's around the place that I like having that fly mesh uh, just to provide a bit of shelter and protection. Uh, but certainly if the climate is good enough uh, and the conditions and the weather is good enough, uh, cowboy camping is is an option as well. Um, Blair talked about the type of shoes that he was wearing and he was using uh, uh, hiking shoes uh, as opposed to boots or trail runners. And given that he was going through snow areas, uh, whatever sort of footwear you're, you were using, I think having something waterproof uh, is definitely the way to go. Um, you know, had he have done it a month later, um, most of the snow probably would have gone by then, but it's just a bit of added extra protection. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of considering, uh, you know, the things you need uh, and, you know, things like the bear canisters, uh, an issue we don't have to deal with in Australia, uh, but you've essentially got this large plastic jar is probably the best way to describe it, where all your food and your fragrant uh, products, so things like toothpaste is supposed to go in there, uh, deodorant if you are using it, anything that's likely to uh, uh, get a bear interested um, and trying to put this thing inside a pack uh, and somehow pack this jigsaw puzzle so everything fits in. Uh, it really does sort of determine what you can actually fit into your pack. So I think from my perspective, as I said, this is this is rated as one of the, the world's best hikes. Uh, and I've talked to a number of people over a period of years and I've never heard anyone say anything bad about this trail. My only negative comment, I suppose, would be it is so popular. Um, you, it is a ballot system, uh, and sometimes you might say, well, I want to go through and do this trip next year, and you just just through bad luck, you're not going to get on the, be able to get on there because you don't get the ballot system you want. I don't know if this is the case or not. Um, Blair wasn't quite sure on this, but the people I've talked to who have done this trip from Australia seem to get on there on the first ballot. Uh, and it's, I'm not quite sure whether the people who run the ballots do give 
um, an added bonus to people coming from overseas uh, as opposed to people who live in the States. It may not be the case. It might be just sheer luck. It could be just a random thing maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe there's <laughs> such a low number of people that um, apply. I don't know. Well, no, it's the, well, it's the, it's the exact opposite. You know, it's, oh, I mean, the, from Australia. From Australia, know. yeah. I think, I think that's it. So I think we, we seem to have a bit of a, a bonus. But again, if you're planning on doing this, you really don't know until roughly about six months out. And I'd probably be looking at having a backup just in case uh, because it is such a popular track. Uh, getting on there is, is, a, is going to be a hard ask or potentially a hard ask. Okay, so we hope you've enjoyed this uh, uh, view into one of the, the world's best hiking trails. Um, if you go to the show notes uh, for this podcast on www.australianhiker.com.au and go to our uh, podcast episode section. We've got a series of links to a number of the hiking resources Blair talked about, uh, to the food resupply, to the Facebook pages for a couple of the trails that were mentioned. And we've also got the, the link to Blair's Instagram feed. So if you want to get a bit more of a uh, we've only got a few photos on our, uh, our website, so if you want to get a, a series of photos from, from all of Blair's trip, uh, go and have a look at Blair's Instagram feed uh, and to get a bit more of a fix on this trail. Next week's episode, uh, we're going to be looking at how to choose a camping site. Um, so... Uh, something that a lot of people tend to take for granted once they have a fair bit of experience. But for newer hikers, you tend to make a few mistakes and you learn very quickly what a good camping site and what a bad camping site is. But hopefully we'll be able to make this a bit easier for you uh, and minimise the, the bad experiences. That, that, that will take me back to my childhood days of um, camping with my father and uh, what he used to go through to <laughs> choose a site. I'm not sure it was all necessary, but hey. <laughs> all right. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode. That's all from me. Bye for now. And bye from me.